through as many of these chapters as we can today. Uh, one, uh, one slight uh, mention, uh, this little chart in the back inside cover, I think most of us might understand that, but in case you don't, where it says years to event in the middle section, years to event, down under the return of Christ, says 1922. That is not the year 1922, but it's the years from 70 A.D. to which we add 1922, or would bring us to 1992. Then we would add five more years to bring us to the millennium, and a thousand years then to bring us to the end of the millennium. So, so if there's anybody that misunderstands the 1922 as being a an A.D. date, why well, you might want to make a note somehow to straighten that out. The uh, fourth chapter of, of the Apocalypse gives us a picture of the uh, throne in heaven on which the head of this Son of Man similitude is reigning and he's surrounded here by 24 elders which are representative of the saints probably in their uh, it, it may be that the 12 tribes of Israel represent the uh, king aspect and 12 represent the uh, priestly aspect. A reference in First Chronicles 24.4, and I believe the uh, account is it's analyzed in Eureka, points out that under that, that situation there were 16 priests serving in one capacity and 8 in another, which totaled 24, and may have some reference to the identity of this uh, Multitude that, that that are associated with the uh, with their head at this time, and the activity of the lightnings and thunders has reference to the spirit's wrath which this multitudinous uh, group will execute upon the uh, uh, apostate nations and those who oppose the would-be ascension of the king to his throne. It also identifies, therefore, us the four living creatures are in the King James version. That's, I think, an unfortunate translation of beasts, and certainly it's not to be confused with the beast system or the Roman system. The word living creatures there comes from the word zoe, Z-O-E, or one of its endings. And uh, you might recall that's, that word is used in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, uh, where it says, uh, where Christ says, I am the resurrection, and the life, or the living creature uh, of some sorts. So there is, uh, e even in Christ's uh, description of himself, where he says, I am the one who has the authority and power and jurisdiction of the resurrection, I am also, and separately and distinctly, the one who has the power to grant that you will be living creatures or living for the age. Uh, and we recognize the distinction that not all who are recipients of the resurrection will be recipients of the living creature status or the Zoe status. Uh, in chapter 5 we're introduced to the seven seals uh, and, and try to remember that I think all of these things, whether we say seals, trumpets, thunders, or what have you, they're really events. In other words, God is saying here are the events which are going to mark the development of my plan or of the manifestation of the saints who are, uh, who are to be eligible to receive the life of the age. 
these seven seals, I think several of us may have noted, but if you haven't, it's worth remembering that they may be different in their presentation than the other symbols in, in that they're rolled up in a uh, scroll and that they are then unsealed one by one. And uh, if you and I were writing a book, we probably would write the first chapter and roll it up into a, a seal, then we would write the second chapter and seal that and the third until we got our seven chapters. But then when we came to expound it or read it, we would unroll the seventh first. In other words, we would be reading the last chapter of a book which would not be very uh, uh, instructive to us because we wouldn't know what had gone on before. So this, this, one is, uh, this seal in the apocalypse is rolled up seventh first, then sixth, then fifth, so that when we unravel it, we get the first chapter or the first seal. And that would prove that the author is divine. So you or I or any uh, human agency that was writing a, a, a book, that, that, and particularly something predictive or of things to come, uh, would need to recognize that we would do it on a human scale, but that the divine author of, of the apocalypse has done this uh, in such a way as to prove or to show to us his uh, uh, rank and position and authority. Uh, the Lion of the tribe of Judah is mentioned in this chapter as being the one who has the right and, uh, and ability to open uh, this uh, seven seal scroll and to uh, show us what the events uh, are. His worthiness is, is described in verses 9 and 12 if you're, if you're following it in your Bibles and the worthiness of the uh, associates is also described in this chapter in verses 8 and 14. Chapter 6 uh, gives us the historical uh, tracing of the events of the times, which basically uh, the first six seals in this uh, chapter cover the time period, if you look on the back cover of your uh, book, from 96 A.D. to 312. And they're basically uh, pagan in nature. Uh, the rulers are pagan. We're in a pagan uh, ecclesiastical system. That was the religion of the Roman Empire and uh, it's leading us up to the great time which is very vital and necessary to the whole of the book that we introduce false Christianity. Now the degree of difference between paganism and false Christianity is very little or none. Uh, maybe in its formality somehow the, basically the pagans had many gods and worshipped uh, of which these gods were false of course but they had a god for every occasion and utilized that god at least superstitiously to uh, call upon for whatever their particular need was and, and when we come to the, to the Catholic universal or pseudo-Christianity stage which was uh, introduced and developed under the uh, reign of Constantine we have a slight alteration, if you will, to where the, uh, the gods maybe took on less visible form, but they were the same uh, uh, mental, I guess we could say. They, they visualized in their minds, as do the uh, Protestant clergy and, and Catholic systems of the day, uh, particularly the Catholic that has a lot of saints that they can call on, one for this reason and one for that reason. 
So uh, I think it has been said they just used the same gods and maybe changed their names. But the idea of, of, of paganism is a misapprehension or understanding of the true and living deity and the ascription of power to a multitude of, of deities that were really born out of ignorance and superstition. Chapters, uh, uh, by the way, uh, Constantine and the history of this thing uh, basically came to power in 312 with three other rulers. And as I understand, and I could be slightly wrong on this, that one of them died, which was either Maxentius or Maximin, which left three. And these, other, these three reigned for a while until Constantine uh, uh, had them killed off or, or went to war with them and, and banished them. So that by 325, it uh, may, may have been earlier as 320, uh, there's a battle of Milvian Bridge or something, I think, that came along there in which he uh, deposed Licinius, who was the last co-ruler with him. And then Constantine was the sole ruler. And he was the one that instituted, we probably most of us know, they had, we had the Council of Nicaea in 325, which was a religious council. That was the occasion of the adoption of the uh, Trinitarian doctrines. Maybe somebody can help me on that. Wasn't it at this council that the doctrine of the Trinity was being voted upon? Well, will we as a church accept it? And the vote was rather tied or something, and Constantine cast the deciding, was this, was this the case? Uh, well, it was a very close vote. So uh, when you stop and think of the, uh, the immense proportion of that doctrine in, in the universal church of today, and to think that it only came in by a squeak, uh, it would show you uh, more or less what, what, uh, what the false system stands for. If Hopefully, if, if we today were deciding upon a doctrine, which we really don't need to, we've had the truth, and our, our group has had the truth for several decades of years, and we don't need to vote on whether man's mortal or immortal, and, but if we were voting on the mortality of man and says, well, well, we adopt that by a 52% to 48 margin, I would think that maybe our doctrines were suspect, as, as, I, as I do and would in the case of the Trinity or other doctrines that they adopted. I was under the impression that this was sort of a tie vote, and Constantine uh, broke the tie by saying, well, have it, but, but maybe Roger's right here. Again, uh, moving ahead as fast as we can, this chapter 7 uh, records to us the sealing of the 144,000 of spiritual Israel. Now these are not natural Israelites per se or in entirety, although we want to recognize that, that uh, David or Noah are, are one of the Old Testament characters we read about, or uh, Paul or Barnabas or, or somebody in the New Testament. Very well would be included in this 144,000. But the Israel of God that is being developed in the manifestation of the Yahweh name uh, consists of spiritual Israel. That is, the saints of all ages from Adam down to our present day. So if we're fortunate enough to be in the kingdom, we will be of this 144,000. Although in the book of Revelation, they are, uh, they are spoken of in a later chapter, that there are 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes, uh, which, which in itself is a rather interesting study because I think there are four places in the Bible where the uh, 12 sons of Jacob are enumerated, all of which are different. And there's a, there's a reason for this. 
uh, it doesn't mean that, that somebody made a mistake and didn't name his sons right but when Ephraim and Manasseh, who were the two sons of Joseph, are incorporated, then Joseph must be omitted and someone else to get, to get Ephraim and Manasseh in that listing. Uh, and, and in some cases, I believe that the sequence in which they're used has some sig significance. So anybody who's interested in, in pursuing a study on that, uh, it, it should be highly recommended. But as a very quick synopsis, we only made two points under this chapter 7, that the, that the sealing or, or securing of this 144,000 is announced here and uh, the ascription of glory to the God of salvation. So this is another chapter in the Apocalypse that's saying, I'm not going to tell you so much history that the pagans are doing this and the Christians are doing that or that somebody's issuing a decree or that the uh, saints are being persecuted, but it's showing us as uh, two or three of the other chapters that let's not lose sight of the fact that the ultimate outcome of, of the uh, nature of this book is to show us the glorification of the body and of its source which is deity as it's manifested through Christ and others. Chapter 8 continues on. We skipped it from the 6th to the 8th by opening the 7th seal uh, in chapter 8. And again, if you can sort of visualize this as a line of history, starting from 96 AD, we come down to 325 or thereabouts to open the seventh seal. And if we could sort of, if we were drawing a line, we could just drop down as a subsidiary line that concurrent with the seventh seal are some more events which are delineated as, uh, as trumpets. So uh, the seventh seal, again, we have no uh, apologies for repeating ourselves, is a continuous series of events starting in 324 or thereabouts, 325, and extending on down until the millennial age. So incorporated in that seventh seal are seven trumpets. We get down to the seventh trumpet, we incorporate seven vials, and, and they all terminate the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh vial, and seven thunders, which are part of the seventh vial at the time of the millennium. In other words, the, the kingdom of men aspect of this is wound up. It, it has a terminable date, which is set and established by the deity, and which we are uh, living in the last days of that time. And uh, hopefully the, uh, well, the, the political events will tie right in with the salvation of the saints. There are four angels or trumpets listed if you'll follow your book on chapter 8. And we've listed the names of some of the prominent uh, features of each of those seals which involve the invasion of the uh, barbaric tribes and, and their uh, persecution of the universal church or the pseudo-Christian uh, element. And uh, these groups, the Goths, the Vandals, Huns, and so forth, are, have no particular religious significance in themselves as I see it, but rather they're, they're just persecuting elements. And uh, God, again, was keeping under control the, the over-expansion possibilities of the system so that the saints, wherever they were existing, and probably very, very small numbers and groups, were able to survive. Uh, chapter 9 moves on to the 5th and 6th 
trumpets. The first four trumpets, again reiterating, were wind, uh, woe trumpets, and the last three would be wind trumpets. Uh, reverse, I'm sorry. First four are uh, wind trumpets, the last three are woe trumpets. Uh, I frankly don't know the difference. I mean, in the sense of what, what the wind might signify. Woes would probably signify to us that, that, that uh, some sort of uh, uh, desecrating event or events were taking place here and basically up upon the Roman system. The uh, Mohammedans uh, spent uh, in this series of years, uh, 300 years uh, persecuting them. They had a great intense dislike for the uh, system because of its many gods. And uh, I believe some writers have, have expressed the opinion that, that the saints are, are, uh, are those maybe even Jews who had, had one God were not the object of their wrath as much as these uh, uh, priests and uh, uh, basically Catholics uh, who were multi-God in, uh, in their thinking. Uh, point number three under chapter nine mentions the second woe trumpet or the sixth angel which uh, depicts the rise of the uh, Byzantine or Ottoman Empire. And that empire was to last from the, I believe, I'm not certain of the dates, but somewhere in the 1400s, I think. And uh, somebody raised a question in our Sunday school about whether the, I said that the name Ottomans came from from the ruler Osman, O-S-M-A-N, in the, in the 14, 1400s. And, and I, I did go and check this out, and, and the word Othman, O-T-H-M-A-N, is also used. So there, I think there are alternate spellings. We're talking, I'm sure, of the same man. But, but as, uh, as these empires come and go, they, uh, they more or less bear the name of, of the one who was perhaps the founder. But the great Ottoman Empire lasted from, let's just say, 1400 to 1900, or a period of, of around 500 years. So it was at this time that it arose and became a, a great influence that was to last over this long period of time. Uh, and, and we've given a couple of dates there that, they, uh, that are drawn from that ninth chapter, the, the uh, 391 years and one month. Uh, Brother Thomas gives in here, uh, we probably miss it a day there, and I'm not quite sure that those days are exactly right. but. Uh, Sometimes it might say April 28th or April 29th or somewhere around there, but from that 1062 date to the 1453 date, which was the destruction of Constantinople, was exactly 391 years and one month. Very, very precise. My, my date misses it by a day here, uh, the date I've typed in there. And the horses and cannons that are mentioned in this chapter came along at the time of the invention of gunpowder and uh, again, if we're comparing our interpretation of the Apocalypse with the history book, we would find that during this period of time, you can, you can go to maybe even the dictionary and look under there, and it may tell you that around this time we had this invention. So warfare was becoming more sophisticated, and, and it was being used. In the uh, tenth chapter, we have the... Uh, uh, picture there of the rainbow angel entity and we're talking about a mighty angel clothed with a cloud and again the cloud is representative of the saints that are associated with their head and the rainbow 
aspect here is, is representative of God's covenant being uh, associated with this group as it was in Noah's time uh, when God stated by the uh, presence of this bow that he had a purpose with the earth and that he would would not do certain things and would do certain things. Basically the uh, the covenant that God had given to Noah says he will not destroy the earth again uh, by water. So the rainbow is, is significant in, in that it is the statement by God uh, of his purpose. Uh, more so in the analysis given in Eureka than in the Bible, uh, Brother Thomas chooses uh, to uh, to define and delineate in, in uh, very good detail what he thinks will happen uh, as the rainbow angel takes up his position in the earth. He says he first descends to Sinai and uh, utilizes a period of, of judgment of the saints. This is a very logical uh, precept in the Bible and Christadelphians uh, to my mind, and as I view them as much as I can with no prejudice, uh, logic is a characteristic of, of the belief of the Christadelphians. It doesn't mean that we can explain everything by logic, but that, that things become logical as we put them together. Uh, uh, judgment is logical after resurrection. Uh, immortalization is logical after judgment. And if we could transfer this to the 10th chapter, the uh, defeat of the opposition and the setting up of the throne in Zion is logical after that. So there's a procession of events that uh, seem to be very logical. And I, I think all of us would agree that God works on the principle of logic. He doesn't ask us to believe unimaginable things. These things are real. They have happened consistently. They are happening and what we project to happen a few years in the future, uh, perhaps we can speculate on them from some standpoint of logic. Uh, in the very short time we want to give to this, uh, and I, I don't have it all uh, that well in my mind, and I may, may get it mixed up in, in terms of, of sequence, but uh, the area of Teman, which is, is difficult sometimes to find on your map, meaning, I think from the back of 3-3, that this is the south. Of course, the Sinaitic Peninsula is in the southern recesses of the uh, nation of uh, Israel. So if Christ comes first uh, to the area of Mount Sinai and judges the saints and organizes them there as his cloud, he then proceeds to leave there, and his ultimate uh, goal is to arrive in Zion and to set up the kingdom. I believe the 24th Psalm says, Who is this king of glory? So at some subsequent stage, whether it's one year or five years or what have you, uh, he will leave Sinai with his multitude. And I believe there's also a parallel in the maybe the 20th of Deuteronomy where it speaks of an Israelite taking a wife and uh, and that he first is, is stays at home, he's exempt from army duty and what have you, so that he can uh, uh, cheer up his wife, I believe is the wording in the, in the 20th chapter. So it could be that there's a time of, of, uh, of respite or, or what have you, rejoicing uh, at the scene of judgment, but at, at some point they go forth as a married 
uh, group. Christ, the groom, we, the female element, are the uh, bride. So bride and groom are united, and as the principle would have it, they don't separate. Uh, they are united in mind, thought, and purpose. So uh, here they go. And I believe he uses the term, whether he, he brings in Habakkuk 3.3 as being Teman. Uh, or Mount Paran is in that same area. I'm not sure that this is his, is, uh, uh, that, this, that this would be what we would call the second stop or, or place to be traversed. He, he takes the uh, rainbow unity into Egypt based on uh, prophecies in, in Isaiah and Psalms and rescues some of natural Israel who are to be uh, associated in some form or fashion, Judah, my battle axe, and things like this, and, and comes back through the Red Sea in a second exodus, which I would assume means the opening of the water, maybe some demonstration at this time that uh, if the word is voiced to the nations around who are in a, a state of siege at this time as a, as a result of the Russian invasion, that there may be signals given, this is merely speculation, that, that this change in, in governmental affairs in the earth is Jewish. That even though the Jews have rejected the Messiah and he's been unrecognized by the Jews even up today, the time is coming when, when, the, when the kingdom is ultimately established under the twelve apostles that there has to be an education process in which, uh, which it is announced worldwide that the throne is in Jerusalem, the king is Christ, he's got royal saints as his associates, he's going to teach the nations, he's got the twelve apostles in that immediate Holy Land area that's been uh, dedicated to Abraham by promise. And the quicker anybody would pick this up and learn it in, the, uh, in that particular age, the more likely, I think we could say, they would, they would be incorporated in as one of the mortal subjects of the kingdom. Whether that's one of the signals or whether there are other, others that are more important, I, I'm unable to say. But, but if, if we knew from some announcement that went throughout the world that, that there was a, an unusual uh, opening of the sea and an exodus of, of a number of people through that, headed back uh, eastward into the... Uh, into the Sinaitic de desert or something like that. It certainly, we think it would be impressive to those observers, uh, unless they're so busy with their war making and, and self-satisfaction that they don't pay any attention. But uh, ultimately, uh, th there's also a question mark that's bothered me, and I've never had it satisfied, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, country, what's Ethiopia called? Has another name. Now, Cush, Cush is, the, Cush is mentioned in one of the prophecies, and in the Bible there are two Cushes, one of which is ascribed to Ethiopia and the other to probably the country of Iraq today, I, I, I believe. So to me it's always, I'm not sure what Brother Thomas meant, but it seemed to me that, that, that Ethiopia is next door to Egypt and that if Christ and the saints went, what we would say, west over to rescue the Israelites in Egypt, that, that there may be some association with Cush, too. Cush is mentioned, but there are some who, felt, who feel that, that the uh, extension of his travels extends over into the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and maybe the Iraq area. I, I'm not inclined to think that so much, but uh, it's there for you to figure out and to uh, labor with yourself. Cush is mentioned, but 
but more important to us, I think we all perhaps agree on, uh, one of the prophecies, I believe in Isaiah, says the Lord hath a controversy in Basra. And in, in Isaiah 63, uh, the question is asked, who is this that comes from Edom, which is that maybe Paran or adjacent area, southern, uh, not, not completely down to Mount Sinai, but in the Sinaitic Desert or Peninsula, so that he probably passes upon the exodus from Egypt through this area headed toward Basra, which is on the uh, east side of, uh, of the Jordan, much as the, the tour that uh, Joshua took in leading the children of Israel out of, of Egypt, uh, Moses and Joshua, uh, on the east side of the Jordan up through what we would call uh, Moab or Ammon, mostly Moab, I think, and then cross the Jordan uh, at uh, near the Jericho area and, and head toward Jerusalem. So that is the root of this rainbowed angel. And, and at Basra, uh, it appears, and, and I, I, of course everybody has to allow for whatever speculation they may, they may feel enters in here. I think we have documentation in Isaiah 63 that uh, the confrontation there is rather, uh, it's, it's the major battle. Uh, of Christ before he ascends to the area of Jerusalem. My, my guess is that this is the Russian armies that have invaded and their, their allies uh, as recorded in Daniel and that it is at that point that, uh, that the enemy is basically defeated and overthrown and a great many of them are, uh, have a loss of life and there are also perhaps more Jews, natural Jews, that are liberated at that time, which are going to become uh, first dominion in the kingdom of God under the twelve apostles. They will be distributed to their various sections of land, uh, as again as enumerated under the twelve sons of Jacob, and will be, as soon as the kingdom gets set up, they will be organized there under that uh, new constitution. That we could, could spend some time on in that chapter about the uh, little open book and the uh, issuing of the seven thunders, which I would assume would be the uh, would include the uh, destruction of the uh, Russian host that, that saturated the land. Time will be lo no longer, which would indicate that that here we here we are at the culmination of the kingdom of men and the preparation to setting up the kingdom of God, re-establishing, we should say, the king of God, the kingdom of God. Now, chapter 11 moves us backward again to the uh, measuring of the temple, or a better translation for that is nave, uh, well, I say better, it's alternate, uh, of uh, God. In other words, the temple represents, or the nave represents the, the uh, holiest or most significant part. It's a word that's used for the church today. I think you go into a church... I don't even know the various parts, but, uh, but the nave, I think, is the most uh, serious or, or holy part of, of the church. I guess it's not the back closets and the side rooms or something. Uh, but in, in terms of the temple of God, we're talking about the saints. They are his most holy group. And uh, we've put in parentheses there, the reason they're measured is there, as God is saying, you're going to have to endure some persecution. And we all know that none of us enter the kingdom without great tribulation. So in our short span of 70 years, it is, uh, it is a fact of life, I guess we say. It's, it's absolute that we're going to have tribulation. 
There's not one of us here that's going to get to the kingdom and say, I, I had no problems, no troubles, no uh, uh, problem managing the flesh or whatever, uh, if, if, it's that, if that seems to be the most simple of, of problems. Perhaps could be described as the most difficult of problems. Because managing the flesh, as we all know from experience, is a lifetime proposition and we think we may manage today to some degree and tomorrow we're down or lower than we were today. I imagine all of us have experienced times when we feel like we, we've risen a little higher than, than maybe the past and, and we've also recognized that, that a week from now or a month from now we, uh, we have different dispositions. So it's very typical of the flesh that we have a constant war on our hands. It is predicted in this 11th chapter 2 that the holy city is to be trodden underfoot 40 and 2 months and that is dated from the decree of focus in 610 in which he authorized the uh, bishop of Rome to be the head of all the ecclesiastical uh, decisions to be made and gave unto him focus ruling in Constantinople gave to the pope in Rome or the bishop I guess I'm not sure if he was called pope at that time the supreme authority in all matters ecclesiastical so I would suppose that if at that time or some subsequent time he had decreed that, that even the people in Constantinople were to worship on uh, Friday instead of Sunday, that they would have had to do this because he was, he was the authority. And uh, also it's, it's prophesied or predicted in this chapter that my two witnesses would prophesy 1260 days or years and that date, I believe, dates from the time of Constantine up to 1572. Which, uh, at which time the, uh, the Catholics again made a, uh, in a great slaughter at St. Bartholomew made a, uh, an advance of suppressing the Christians uh, which included the saints uh, after, after having 1260 years of semi-protection I guess we could call it. Now I've noted at the bottom of the page that there are two opinions at least that, that, that I've jotted down here and there may be more from other people but the uh, author of Eureka feels that the two witnesses mentioned here are the anti-Catholics, which would be people that did not accept the, uh, the theory of Constantine, and that those uh, saints or those holding the truth were the other uh, witness. Now, if we agreed with this thought, I'm sure we would all say, well, the anti-Catholics were 99% and the saints were 1%, which, which very likely would be the case. In the Apocalypse epitomized, the thought set forth there is that these two witnesses, one was the earth or democracy, or I suppose more of a political uh, thought, and the second was the woman, or I suppose the church, uh, universal church, or a religious opposition. But in any case, these two witnesses uh, were prophesied to be extant in the earth for 1260 years. Uh, during this period of time, the opposition that was uh, put up against the, uh, the ruling beast system came from the Donatists at an earlier time and the Walden disease, which is another group of people who followed a man by the name of Peter Waldo, the Novatians, and the Huguenots, which were more up closer to the French Revolution. Brother Thomas says, as again, I think we're reiterating, but he says, if the truth was to be found, it was found in people like this. Now, it doesn't mean I had to be a Walden disease or a Huguenot because in many cases these people went to war against the church. And, and Christadelphians from the days of the apostles have not 
chosen to bear arms. It's been, it, it violates their loyalty uh, to their king. They know that their time of uh, bearing arms and fighting is not in this present kingdom age. It's in the kingdom to come. So uh, the rule of thumb is when God says it's all right to kill, it's all right to kill. When he says you refrain from killing, then you refrain. So the day is coming in the future when saints will be called upon to execute the judgments written, which will include the destruction of the kings of the earth, the binding of their nobles with fetters of iron, and, and this, this type of uh, application of the rule of the day. The Edict of Nantes is an important event in this, in seeing this church and and uh, and sainthood, I guess we could say, of, of the of the uh, holy city, in which the edict took some of the pressure off and allowed uh, non-Catholics, which would which would again include what we would call Protestants as well as saints, uh, that they could vote and own land and have some privileges. And so that lasted for uh, about 85 years. And then the Edict of Nantes, or Nantes, however, I th I've called it Nantes, uh, was revoked. And the persecution was reinstituted. Can't own land, can't vote, can't have certain jobs, and things like this. You, you weren't with the majority. So for 105 years, it, it speaks there of their dead bodies lying in the street. In other words, they were inanimate by uh, by having no uh, strength to exercise their will. So that lasted until 1790 or 89, about the time of the French Revolution, when they revolted. So after 105 years of consecutive pressures and, and uh, uh, deprivations, uh, this group, and we want to be sure and remember that they are anti-Catholics. We're not talking, even though the saints are protected, during this period of time. The saints aren't going to war in the French Revolution and, and claim the kingdom. Their time of claiming the kingdom is, an, is a type of the French Revolution. When they're greater than Napoleon, which is Christ, is going to organize his army and take over the kingdom of men and make it the kingdom of God. So uh, that speaks of the great earthquake of, of the French Revolution. A tenth part of the city falling uh, has reference, I think, to France being a tenth of the European Commonwealth at that time, as, as it might be measured, because the Roman Empire uh, was very strong in that area and, and throughout Austria and Prussia and, and Lombardy and all of the other nations of the time. So this, beg pardon. Well, yeah, we we're going to get to that, I believe, in the in the thirteenth chapter, where where one one beast more or less matures into the other, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth and the image of the beast. All of these systems uh, advance the cause of uh, Catholicism. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire, I believe as it was called, came in about 800 in the era of, uh, of Pepin and Charlemagne. So the sounding of this seventh angel, which is the final point on chapter 11, uh, signals the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So somebody, we all should ask, I would say, well, did, did in 1789, the French Revolution, which may have lasted officially till 1793 or 4, did the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord? And we answer, no, we, we're living today, and they still haven't become that. 
But what what the uh, uh, what John is being shown here in this vision is that this event ushers in a series of events which will ultimate in the return of Christ and the setting up of the kingdom. Again, a very real and logical uh, event or a series of events. As I recall the words of Brother Thomas in Eureka, he says this seventh trumpet began to sound and continues to sound until this day. Of course, he was writing in 1868, but it had, according to his view of it, it had been sounding for 70 or 80 years then. In our case, it's been sounding for nearly 200. He just did not foresee the next 100 years that, that we've lived in. But the effect and voice of that trumpet, the seventh trumpet, is, is sounding. And then as we sort of carry our string across, dropping down in the era of that seventh trumpet are seven vials. So, so God is saying, in effect, if you want to visualize or understand this seventh trumpet, it's going to be made up of seven components or seven steps. Uh, and never are these events, sometimes these events are consecutive. They'll stop in one year and begin the next. Sometimes they're gapped. So uh, we can't, it's not an easy job to go into history and say, well, we'll just, every ten years we'll have something happen. Uh, the vials overlap. I think the second vial extended from maybe 17, we can look at the back page, 1793 uh, to 1813. And while that was going on, if you look at the dates and if they're reasonably correct, the third vial started in 1796 under one of the Napoleonic uh, missions and continued on to 1801. So the second vial didn't complete until the third and fourth uh, were completed. And that, that's sort of an unusual, it's, it's a puzzle. But I, uh, we again have to say, does our history book reasonably agree with this? And I think it does. So the announcement in, in the last point that we have under uh, chapter 11 is saying that this great event is going to signal to us the termination of men's kingdoms and it's going to ultimate in the kingdom of God. And we all watch very carefully in the uh, events that go on around us. One of the, uh, apparently it hasn't amounted to anything, but the uh, uh, uprising that we've had in the last uh, month in China by the students against the government there, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind is this is the spirit of the French Revolution. It's just a, another manifestation of it. This country that we live in, only 10 or 12 years separated it, and, and I think our historians have remarked that the spirit of revolution that gave birth to the United States in 1776 was carried by Lafayette and others over to France, and that they sort of said, look, if you, if you want to get your way, get you a few guns and, and tell the government you're not going to do what they want to do. So how many nations have we observed today in Central America, Africa, South America, Europe, that uh, let the weak say I am strong. So some little nation with, with 500 people jumps up and challenges the United States or Russia or some large nation and tells them that we're going we're gonna to do what we want to do. And that is the spirit that has been prevalent in this last 200 years of history. The Catholics kept it suppressed for 1260 or more years in which nobody dared under the threat of loss of life uh, to rise up. But again, we see this thing being very calculated by the deity, and it, it, it fits very, very nicely, and here we are in the very last days, uh, and I think we have the map traced as it's happened. Verse, uh, chapter 12, reverts back, we, we'll hopefully maybe cover this in the next two or three minutes, that's all we've got left, of the uh, 
defining, and I think there's been argument among Christadelphians on whether this Michael in this chapter refers to Constantine or not. I feel quite confident that it does. That the man-child born here of this woman, which was the true Ecclesia, who had become pregnant with a, with a child by uh, mixing, not with her husband, which would have been God in his way and his word, but with these false ideas. This, this is what she became impregnated with. You remember we read that Paul says, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's busy in his day. In fact, if we took his day to be 50 or 60 A.D., it had been working since 30 or 33 A.D. And when we measure the 280 years it gave birth in the year 312 uh, to this child. Uh, the great red, red dragon was paganism who, uh, during this period, which was, I guess, responsible for some of the thought. And the, one, the name Michael means who like God. Well, that fits Constantine very well. In other words, he was the champion of the people, their leader, their supreme being, and, and became the author of uh, Catholicism uh, that was to last for so many hundreds of years. I think some have even defined him as the first pope. I don't know. He wasn't known as a pope, but, uh, but he was certainly head of the system. The, uh, there's a, not only the Trinitarian doctrine, but there's another doctrine of called... Uh, well, it, it basically involves the uh, uh, definition of Christ's nature. Seems like it starts with a ooh. ooh. Some kind of a Greek word. I can't think of it. Uh, anybody here know what I'm talking about? Uh, anyway, the, the doctrines were being formulated at this time which were changing over from paganism to uh, pseudo-Christianity. And again, this woman was persecuted. In other words, after having given birth to this man-child who was to uh, further this system, the woman uh, was persecuted. In other words, they didn't, they didn't want to continue with her philosophies. They wanted to establish their own. And again, the 12, a 1260-year period from 312 to 1572 is, is uh, mentioned in this chapter uh, in the persecution of the woman. And uh, we're told that the earth helped the woman. I believe that the earth there is probably the anti-Catholic element. There was a system in Constantine's time which opposed the Trinitarians, which were called the Arians, which were basically one-god people. But they were the ones that were defeated at this Council of Nice where the Trinitarians, by a small margin, outvoted the Arians. So we, we brought in as a doctrine to the church uh, three gods uh, in whatever system we could define them as opposed to a Unitarian god. I think we'll, we, are, we should stop right at that point. We'll try to, tomorrow will be our last lesson, and we'll... Touching on each one of them, which we sort of have before... Starting with the uh, chapter 13, we're introduced to the uh, various phases of the Roman system. And, and we want to call your attention again to the principles that we outlined in the first of uh, the inside cover of this book, that uh, a theme of the apocalypse very well uh, could be seen and should be seen as the victory of the ecclesia over the church, or of Zion over Rome. And of course, in the phasing and development of this system since the days of Constantine in the uh, early 300s, uh, this beast system has progressed and magnified itself uh, and continued to do so predominantly down to the French Revolution and even after that time uh, and up to our, our current day. 
so it, it yet remains as the object of the wrath of deity and will be dealt with in an antitypical situation when the greater than Napoleon comes and wreaks uh, destruction upon them in an uh, uh, antitypical way that the first Napoleon did. Only this, the second wreaking will be final and, and complete. So it's referred to there as the beast of the sea, which has reference to the its uh, Mediterranean location, and the uh, and three or four hundred years later, in the manifestation of the beast of the earth, uh, in the uh, Pepin Charlemagne era, and uh, other identifications that we see throughout this chapter, uh, and I think that probably would be about as much as we can say on it. You can, you can glance at the uh, notes we have here and we realize we're not uh, covering all of them, but, but uh, that's the content of the 13th chapter. Now the 14th chapter takes you again to the mention of the 144,000, which is the redeemed, and of their character and mission. They sing a new song there, which, which is of victory, and uh, the uh, chapter is spent in the uh, proclamation of the uh, Aeonian Gospel or the age-lasting Gospel and, and the uh, plagues that are dealt out or thunders uh, to the nations. The, the uh, latter part of that chapter deals with the uh, thrusting in of the sickle and the reaping of the harvest of the earth and the vintage which again signifies that this beast system being the object of the uh, wrath of the deity uh, will be dealt with very severely. Uh, it's been my uh, thought that we, when we look at the overall biblical prophecy, Daniel and Revelation, that Daniel presents to us more of the political aspect of the kingdom of men and which uh, natural Israel has been desecrated by Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and that, that Revelation is, is merely a continuation, but more of an emphasis on the ecclesia, or the spiritual side. So, it, so the apostate Roman system, or Catholicism, has spent its time and energies over these hundreds of years in attempting to black out, or diminish, or, or get rid of the true ecclesia. So when we preach doctrines such as they do, what we are doing is eliminating or minimizing or, or canceling the effect of the truth or of the ecclesia's voice. So uh, I think we, I would like for you to think on that or make a note and remember it. One thing, the last point and, uh, and we have under chapter 14 is the 1600 furlongs and we re reference there page 195 of Times and Seasons. And, I recognize that maybe everybody doesn't have all of these uh, uh, materials, and uh, in that uh, chapter, chapter 26, I, I read it last night, but I've forgotten its title. Might might be like the seventh vial or something like that. Uh, it's 11 pages, and let me just back up a minute here. I think. On, in point number four, under chapter 14, we, we read there of an hour of judgment. 
And I think most of us would agree that, that based on a year-for-day principle, an hour is 30 years. And uh, the thought presented in Eureka is that Christ would come in the period about 1868 and a 40-year period would be spent by Christ and the saints, 10 years preaching the everlasting gospel and 30 years wreaking judgment upon the papal system. So that would be that hour of judgment. We have presented in our numbers on the back inside cover, and, and we would say again that we're more inclined to agree with, with the middle portion of this page because based solely on the 6,000-year scheme of things, we only have a very, very few years. We don't have 40 years left. So how can we place in this uh, minute period of maybe five to seven years a 40-year uh, dispensation, 10 years of preaching of the gospel, and 30 years of, uh, of judgment. Uh, some have erred, I believe, in saying, well, we reach over into the millennium, and we beat our swords in the plowshares, or the nations do, uh, in the early part of the, of the millennium, which uh, I, I have countered this argument of, of saying, well, you've really got only 970 years reign of peace, because you're spending 30 years uh, in the first part of the millennium uh, rooting out the evil of the nations. I, I, uh, I'm unable to, to accept that uh, thinking, and therefore I think Brother Thomas is wrong. His, the basis of his argument, I believe, is sol not solely, but primarily on uh, Micah 7.15. It might be a good idea if you uh, uh, look at that. And he, and he repeats this quotation quite often in his uh, analysis. Uh, Micah 7.15 reads as follows, According to the days of the coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. Uh, again, without taking a lot of... Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to ridicule the idea, but there's nothing in this verse that says 40 years. There is something that says according to the days of coming out of Egypt. And we recognize that the exodus uh, took place with the uh, uh, hundreds or thousands of uh, Israelites going through the Red Sea and to Sinai and wandering in the desert and ultimately entering the land under Joshua, which, which was 40 years. We all acknowledge that. But here it says coming out of the land of Egypt, and if we'll turn over to Exodus, I'm not sure of the chapter, but it merely says, I believe it says, or you can count it, at 45 days after they left Egypt, they arrived at Sinai. Wasn't that coming out? Uh, it, it's an alternative view. Uh, is the coming out referred to in, in Micah 7.15 here, does it involve the complete exodus and entrance into the promised land, or does it mean something else? Uh, I, and again, somebody saying that we have 40 years has to do two things. They have to discount the 4004 creation date, which is an option you have, or they have to uh, make the kingdom of men 6,030 plus years. Uh, I'm unable, in my thinking, to, to do that. I think we're, we're restricted, if you will, from the creation, which, which I believe is 4004, to uh, 1996 or 7, which would complete the 6,000 years. So, so working from that end date of 1996-7, uh, 
backing up to our time, we only have about seven years uh, from today to the end of the 6,000 years. And I believe that when we enter that very next day, month, or whatever the time period is, that we will be in the millennium, that Christ and the saints will be ruling and reigning. They, they won't have any opposition there to, uh, to thwart their, their efforts to rule and reign, as chapter 20 says, for a thousand years. Not, not something shorter, not something longer, but a millennium or a day. The word millennium, as most of us know, means, milli means a thousand, and uh, annum means years. So we're talking of 1,000 years, and we're talking in the uh, type in Genesis of 6,000 years. Uh, and I think we'll let it go with that. This, this 1,600 furlongs mentioned in point 12 in chapter 14, again, Brother Thomas takes 40, this 40 years possibly from Micah 7.15, and squares it and says 40 times 40 equals 1,600. Uh, I don't believe he makes a lot out of furlongs. A furlong is an eighth of a mile. Uh, but he, he spends a lot of time saying, well, there we have our 40 years again, and once Christ comes, we will spend 40 years doing these things, and then we will enter into the kingdom age. Uh, the alternative that I pointed out there in times and seasons, I wish I could explain it to you better, but uh, the author there, maybe I can just read one or two lines without spending a lot of time on it, uh, feels that it is not, does not reference time. So we're not talking about years, months, or 40, or any other number. Uh, he points out to us that uh, oh, anyway that the furlong it was purely of Gentile use. He's, and this is his summary, which which I recognize does not prove anything to you without having read more of the chapter. But he says so that the words of Revelation 14:20, that's where the 1600 furlongs is mentioned indicate as furlongs the agents, and he uh, emphasizes that word. They are the agents of deity in the task of treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty Deity. Uh, and, there, and then he goes on to say the treading of the winepress of the wrath of the Almighty God must therefore be regarded as occupying less than 40 years. Uh, again, we haven't really proved anything, but just called your attention that, that if you have an opportunity to read that chapter, uh, you may get a different slant uh, than the 40-year thinking. Chapter 15 mentions the... Uh, and, and, you know, when I looked at the notes on this thing, and I, you might, might put a question mark under that because I'm not quite sure. It does mention seven last plagues, which are, uh, by the Revelation analysis, are the seven thunders. They are the effect of the activity of Christ and the saints under the seventh vial once he returns. So if he came back today and 1997 was our terminal date, he would have roughly eight years, uh, or parts of most of that time, to execute the last plagues or thunders upon the opposition. But this chapter does go in and mention the vials. In other words, I don't want to confuse the plagues and the vials as being identical, and yet the way I had, have outlined it there is somewhat confusing. Uh, 
but the, uh, turning over to page 4, the sea of glass mingled with fire and the song of Moses and of the Lamb and the nave fell with smoke show that we're in a period, the nave representing the ecclesia or the saved ones again, uh, has been in a stormy or smoky period in which they have executed the judgments written, which is the seventh, seventh vial, which consists of the seven thunders. Now, chapter 16, again, I think we've made reference to this earlier in the week, which is the uh, uh, reduction, if you will, in, in power and authority of the papal populations of the earth. And those first five vials were poured out during this 30-year uh, period, roughly, from 1790 to 1820. And, and the, uh, the Catholic system was severely scorched and, and reduced in its authority. Uh, I believe Brother Thomas writes in Eureka that no sooner had we uh, reached the end uh, of this fifth vial than, than the uh, Catholic system began to emerge again and, and sort of come back in their strength. So they really were only suppressed and reduced for a, for a relatively short period of time. But the sixth vial shifts its uh, uh, exposition to the uh, great river Euphrates or the Ottoman Empire which had been in existence as we pointed out earlier for some 400 years and yet at this time they began to rise and accumulate other nations. I'm sure you can find maps of how much territory they can controlled and then we, when we finally see them drying up in 1917 the I'm not sure again that, that Palestine was the last territory that they yielded, there may have been another one, but roughly at that time they were stripped of all territories that they controlled and the great river Euphrates was figuratively dried up in the demise of the uh, Ottoman power. And then in this chapter we're really brought up to, uh, to our, our generation or our time if we all go back to 1917, which some of us I realize don't, but at that time, uh, or about this time, the, uh, or, or during this time, I guess would be better to say, I don't want to say it happened in 1917 or 1927 or some other date, but the uh, three unclean spirits like frogs, and I think the frogs has a, has a French connotation relative to the, uh, the spirit of the French Revolution, which has been in existence for these last 75 years, uh, predominantly, this, this is not to say men, men weren't rebellious a thousand years ago, but, but in the history of man as we survey it, uh, we have a period of time, this last 200 years from the French Revolution, in which this, this spirit uh, is very prominent. And so these three unclean spirits like frogs uh, are going forth or about to go forth, depending on how you look at it, and uh, it is mentioned there that they come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth, mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. We have jotted down what we sort of feel those symbols identify, which would be the two legs or the two sections of the Roman Empire, Constantinople and, and Europe, and the ecclesiastical authority, the papacy, which uh, will control, I think, in the future days more and more. It does, does already. But more and more, I think we'll see a, a unification between Eastern and Western Rome, just as it formerly existed in uh, Justinian and Focus's time, uh, and uh, in, a, in a sense even back to Constantine. Constantine moved the capital over to Constantinople, 
and we've seen a, a relationship that has existed sometimes uh, at a distance but, but coming together more and more in our time. So these three unclean uh, spirits like frogs we think will be the cry of these uh, uh, particularly centering nations in this European territory which will lead up to the battle of the great day of God Almighty and the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord again being a period of time more than 24 hours most likely several years. And the thief-like advent of Christ comes under this sixth vial. So we're not to reach the end of the sixth vial until he comes. And when he does, then we move into the seventh vial period, which is a period of, of war and destruction by Christ and the saints, the overthrow of the kingdom of men, the setting up of the kingdom of God. Uh, very likely, we, we read a verse in Joel there that mentioned the second verse, I believe, of Joel 3 that mentioned the Je Jehoshaphat Valley, which is adjacent to Jerusalem. And uh, very likely, much of the uh, uh, warfare will be centered in that area, we think. I will gather all nations to battle, he says in Zechariah 14.1, against Jerusalem. So it would certainly appear unlikely to me that this would be 100 miles or, or 50 miles away, but rather particularly in the locale of the uh, holy city. Now the 17th and 18th verses uh, bring up the destruction of this great harlot system. And hopefully all of us have learned to identify and to, to resist the effects of that system. But to be aware that it has governed the minds and hearts of men for lo these many years and it's the, uh, when we stop and think about it, when, when any of us, who certainly are, have no power to influence people very much, uh, take it upon ourselves to pose as God, which this system has done, and which, it, which its uh, harlot uh, progeny have also done, the Protestant Church teaches nothing different from the Catholic Church other than formal dress and attire and, and ecclesiastical procedure. They all believe in the immortal soul and are going to heaven and a burning hell and, a, and a universal resurrection and the Trinity and, and such doctrines that insult the deity on high. So these things can be practiced and done day by day by all of our, our neighbors of Christendom but uh, we need to stop and think how offensive this is uh, in the eyes of deity. And I believe there's one scripture that says these things uh, uh, come up into his nostrils and, and cause him to, be, uh, to take action, which he will, of course, through Christ and the saints. But this great uh, imposture that has been posed by this system uh, is coming before the Lord and will be dealt with and it's sort of outlined in, in form or, or symbolism in these two chapters. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. The 19th chapter mentions the victory and I think it's mentioned of course earlier in, in uh, the 17th and 18th of the fall of Babylon. It's announced two or three times in Revelation behold Babylon is fallen is fallen. So when that when we can make that statement which we can't today uh, victory has been achieved. In other words, this is what the saints of all ages have been longing for, and we can't say that they've necessarily been working for that event in their lifetime, but they know that if they're raised from the dead and made a part of the immortal multitude or son of man, 
that they will participate. This honor have all the saints. When it says they bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. That 149th Psalm is more destructive, or we want to look at it as being destructive. Some of the language, when we say we can bind kings or tie them up, remember it's more severe than that. It's, it's a destruction. They're slain and slaughtered. Behold, the Lord has a controversy in Basra. So when the saints come from, uh, from the Sinaitic era, area and move north to proceed to take their position in the city of Jerusalem, there will be a great slaughter of many peoples, uh, as Zechariah 14 and other prophecies tell us. We're concerned, at least for a minute, on mentioning these hallelujahs, that each of those are really sort of celebrating the same thing, but maybe phases. But they're really saying, what does hallelujah mean? Praise. And the Yah is added to God. So the, uh, the uh, shout of the victorious multitude is praise be to the Lord. So in other words, his praise is now uh, extant and evident in the earth. We can say praise the Lord today. And what we're saying is hopefully that the time is coming when his praises will be throughout all the earth. And when we sing those praises, that they are, are meaningful even today in hope, but that day they will be meaningful in realization. Uh, Christadelphians, maybe nearly universally, uh, are, are not what we would call, uh, at least in our meetings and probably elsewhere, overly emotional. I think we have what we might call a more of a subdued emotion. Uh, we don't go around maybe saying to each other, hallelujah, or we don't ask our members to roll in the aisle and, and go through all these gyrations as an evidence that we are interested in praising the Lord. But uh, the Psalms, as we are all aware, are, are full of the admonition and suggestion that this is a state of mind that's, that's highly desirable. And, uh, and again, I agree that, that our practices are, uh, or emotion is good, but it doesn't speak the whole of our religion. It has its place, and uh, whatever way we want to manifest it, uh, whether it's by prayer or, or uh, open conversation of some kind, uh, I think inwardly and somewhat subdued that we are a people that, that are perhaps daily saying in our lives, that our desire is that the Lord be praised by our actions and by our thoughts and our ambitions. So that's an excellent chapter. The marriage of the Lamb is mentioned in this chapter, which again is the culmination of all of our hopes and desires. H.P. Mansfield in the Apocalypse epitomized, epitomized separates these two events. We've made mention in point number five and point number six the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper. That's, that's the two events, as he sees them, uh, the first occurring at Sinai when, when immortalization takes place, the second occurring at Jerusalem when the victorious saints have arrived there and more or less set up the kingdom. Uh, it's my opinion that, that, that uh, Eureka doesn't mention these as two events. Uh, I guess we could say, uh, to, to sort of brush the question off a little bit, 
whoever takes part in the first will certainly take part in the second if there are two separate events. Uh, I, I'm not totally convinced uh, that they are. I think the greatest uh, celebration that, that we're uh, concerned with and that we're desirous of taking part in is the marriage of the Lamb. At that time, the ecclesia, the purified bride of Christ, will be united with him. And once they are with him, they are married. So there, there's no separation. Husband and wife are there as a unit to work together. So uh, I think it's unlikely that if we were to chart a uh, a projected activity by this group later on that that a hundred of them are not going into Egypt and a hundred to Australia and a hundred here they're going to work as a unit now that doesn't mean that that uh, that they have to lock arms or be all together in, in one location but but their thrust and mind and heart is all one because they are married the marriage of the lamb is a very significant and uh, exhilarating thought that's presented to us here in the 19th chapter The uh, 20th chapter we're going to talk about maybe for the rest of the class. It's a, uh, and, and before we do that, we can just say jumping ahead to the 21st and 22nd. Uh, for some time, I felt that, uh, that the book of, of the Apocalypse did not particularly treat of the millennial era. In other words, what it did was to interest us as its readers and, and uh, those who hope in Israel's hope, to get to the kingdom, that's our objective, is to overcome the flesh in this life and should we go into the grave to rise at the resurrection and be incorporated in the activity of Christ and the saints so that we can set up the kingdom. Now when we get to the kingdom era or the seventh day, we will all have activities if, if we're fortunate enough to participate. And I personally, I want to say here before we get into the 20th chapter, uh, it's somewhat conjecture. In other words, we have to look into the future. What are we going to do? What's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and ten years from now or in the millennium? Certainly we don't want to say to our brethren, you, you see certain things in the millennium that I don't see, therefore uh, I have no regard for what you say or, or even worse than that, I, I dislike you very much. And this 20th chapter has caused a lot of controversy and, and hard feelings. Uh, Speaking of controversy, uh, you know, the immortal soul theory is controversial. Uh, if we meet somebody from Christendom and he believes the immortal soul and we think man's mortal, we've got a controversy with him. Now, it depends on how, whether we want to rub salt in the wounds or whether we want to argue with him. And, and uh, hopefully we would like to convince logically somebody that the immortal soul theory doesn't hold water. It's not biblically supported and, and many other Christendom doctrines. We're not talking, in my mind, of, of so much doctrine in the 20th chapter as we are what will happen uh, at this seventh day. So the 21st and 22nd chapters move us beyond, I think now, as I said, I formerly thought it, that probably there was nothing in the, in the Bible or Revelation that spoke of the details of the millennium, but I think they are painted there and that the pictures in the 21st and 22nd of the wood of life and no more death uh, of the saints, of course, and uh, situations like this are described. So we're not going to spend any time there, but we're going to try to touch on the 20th chapter. So the fact that it's controversial, either it leads us to one of two avenues. 
uh, either we're intimidated and we say, well, we just got to scratch that chapter out of the Bible. We can't argue about it or talk of Europe where this apostasy has prospered for so many years and which has recently at this time been acted upon by Christ and the saints and subdued. So uh, here's where he throws him out into this arena or shuts him up uh, for a thousand years or until that thousand years should be fulfilled. And then we're told that after this he must be loosed a little season. So if there is a devil principle and he is to be loosed a little season, this appears to me to be logical that there is, is a, a, a loosing of the restraint of sin. That at some time, this little season, which we showed you in the drawing on the back inside cover, Brother Thomas thought was six years, and Brother Mansfield thought was 50 years, and I, I don't feel I can tell you anything about it. I think it could be five minutes or it could be longer, uh, wh whatever the deity takes. I don't see any evidence that he tells us anything other than a little season. Now one season mentioned in the Apocalypse, he, uh, when he says a season and a time, I believe he, he uh, relates this to uh, 720 years. Well, I think most all of us would agree that, that we're probably not talking of any 720 years or, or twice 360, but uh, a very short span of time after the thousand years. That brings up an argument which I don't think we're going to deal with of whether, if there is a rebellion, whether it takes place on the eighth day or at the tail end of the seventh day. Uh, this verse, read literally, would say after that, which would appear to be the eighth day, but uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure and I don't want to comment on it. But the fourth verse introduces to us, I believe, the resurrection. So John in vision sees thrones and people sitting upon them. In other words, they have ascended from a lowly estate to a high estate. And we know that the process uh, by which this is accomplished would have to be, to include the worthies of old, would have to be the resurrection. He saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. So all down through the uh, hundreds of years of man's existence, this has been the case. The faithful saints have been slain and persecuted in many instances, and they had been persecuted for believing in the word, and they uh, had held fast by not worshiping the beast nor his image or the system, and uh, had not received his mark upon their foreheads. In other words, they had resisted this Christendom influence. In other words, the truth is far removed from popular Orthodox Christendom. And this group of people that he sees here upon these thrones uh, are said to rule and reign or live with Christ a thousand years. Now certainly nobody can take that verse and say, well that's the thousand years from, uh, I forget where uh, the pamphlet and the binding of Satan went back to say the year 800 and says the thousand years is 800 to, to 1800 or, or maybe to the French Revolution or something. Uh, they've identified these thousand year periods as something other than the millennium. So if you're living and reigning with Christ, we know, we're all agreed that we're talking of a reigning period and Christ being here. So he's not here now. He hasn't been for, for a long time. So we can only say that thousand years represents truly the millennial reign. And then the next verse, but the rest of the dead lived not again until a thousand years were finished. Uh, again, if you're looking for, for uh, satisfying what you think is right on this, Brother Thomas, I think, says that pushes to the end of the thousand years. Uh, 
Brother Andrew in his writing in the Sanctuary Keeper uh, says uh, what I agree with, that uh, if we strike the word again out of there, we probably get the better sense. And that is, but the rest of the dead, that is those who are not sitting on thrones reigning, the rest of them, which would be the, the ones who weren't accounted worthy to attain eternal life, lived not until a thousand years were finished. In other words, they, they were cut off and died. Or we could say, by adding our own words, they lived not until a thousand years were finished or till the next thousand years or the next thousand years, if we were measuring some time. In other words, they did not continue to live. And we want to be careful that we're not saying that there's two separate resurrections. The righteous come up here one day and the unjust come up over here sometime later. That there's a separation or prejudgment or immortal emergence or something like that. They are raised together, dead saints, good and bad. They are judged and separated. Some are awarded thrones and rulership. The others live not during this thousand-year era. That's what I think the fifth verse means. And then he announces this, which I would say was the package of the fourth and fifth verses, is the first resurrection or chief resurrection. In other words, again, and I think we can sympathize with this thought, those of us, and probably we, we would prefer to look back at those in the Bible who, who are, whose pictures are painted to us. And of course, we have both good and bad there. But we think of, of, of the worthies that are announced in uh, Hebrews 11, Jephthah, Samson, Abraham, Sarah, and, and others that are outlined there are going to participate in what is what we feel is correctly called the chief resurrection. That these people, uh, to put it maybe in a... Uh, a way that we might understand. I don't know if we'll agree with it. They went through 6,000 years, or parts of a 6,000 year, a very, very troublesome time. Whereas if we were constituents of the, of the kingdom age, we've got all kinds of benefits and helps to get us through, as it were, to, to immortality. And those that succeed in that thousand year period will have come through an easier trial, if you will. And yet we recognize, to, to modify that, God is no respecter of persons. I, I don't think he indiscriminately shares his uh, glorified nature with you or I or anybody else because he feels sorry for us or, or because he wants to give us an easier time. All that enter the kingdom will suffer great tribulation. And, and I would speculate to some degree in the kingdom age, but it will be made easier as an overall picture. So the first resurrection is the chief resurrection. And of course, I would assume, not, not sharing the view that, that, uh, that there is no further resurrection, those who say one resurrection, that's when Christ comes, that would be the chief and only resurrection to them. I feel that there, there is further resurrection of those who die in the faith in the thousand years. And he goes on to announce in verse 6 that these people will be blessed and holy because they are basically uh, recipients of immortality. And they are to reign and rule as kings and priests. And he goes on in verse 7, when the thousand years, again, I, I would rather be insistent that that represents the millennial thousand years, when they are expired or finished, Satan is loosed out of his prison, which confirms what, what verse 2 and 3 say. And he goes out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, and they are, I believe, symbolically called Gog and Magog, and he gathers them together to battle. Now, if, if verse 7 is the thousand-year period, I mean, I, I can't, I have difficulty 
taking an alternate thought that uh, that the next verse doesn't happen sequentially to that. He gathers them together to do battle. I mean, he doesn't gather them together to talk to them and reason with them or something like this. They, they are to do battle, and the number of whom is the sand of the sea. Now, I don't think there's any inference in there that when we say sand of the sea that we've got 50 righteous people uh, serving God under the immortal rule of the saints and, and uh, hundreds of millions of people who are, uh, are anti-millennium. Uh, I think he's just saying this is the this is the wind up, and whatever's left, we've got to dispose of them somehow. And this this group that's gathered together says they go up and compass the camp of the saints round about with the intention of, of uh, destroying them. But but the reverse happens. The power of God comes down from uh, from the deity and devours or destroys them. And the devil again, I think we're talking of a sin principle that that rules in the hearts of men was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, again, which is symbolic of total destruction. The beast and the false prophet, which are the Roman system and the papacy, they were cast into the lake of fire at the beginning of the thousand years. They're destroyed. There's not going to be any papal thrones and crosses in the kingdom. They're, not, they're, they're destroyed. They're in a lake of fire. But the sin principle lives on in the hearts of men, and they can be rebellious or they can serve. And we read in Zechariah that there are some who will decline to go up and carry out their worship services, but they're going to be dealt with. So it announces in verse 10 that the beast and the false prophet are there. They're, they are consumed or are residing, if you wanted to consider them still. They're alive only in memory. They're in that lake of fire, and now the devil is going to be cast in there, which is then principle. So he won't deceive people anymore. And uh, at this point in the vision, uh, John sees a great white throne and him that sat on it and uh, identifies, I think, Christ and the rulership of the age. And he sees in verse 12, the dead, small and great, stand before God. I would see that dead as those who are raised, having completed some probation in the millennial period. I believe, and I'm not really not able to explain the alternative view since I probably haven't pursued that as much, but I think the alternative view must be that if there is no resurrection at the end of the thousand years, that somehow the faithful during the thousand years either become immortalized at age something, 50 or 100 or 200, whatever, whatever is the limitation, or that if you're born in the first part of the millennium, and you may live on 900 or 950 years till you get to the end of the millennium, and somehow there is a transference of nature. In other words, you don't pass into the grave and require resurrection. I would think that that's the alternative view, which I am not able to subscribe to at this point. I think that in verse 12 and verse 13, when the sea gave up the dead which were in it, uh, signifies that, that faithful saints as well as, as unfaithful saints die in the millennium and I would suppose uh, that there are those who never take up sainthood I, uh, I know what the amended teach they teach they teach universal they teach universal resurrection because their theory is enlightened and when you've got immortal teachers in the kingdom age everybody's enlightened so, so their theory and I had an amended brother acknowledge yes that's what we believe. Now, whether everyone does, I don't know. We do believe in immortal or in uh, total resurrection of all people in that thousand-year period, uh, which, again, 
subscribes to the theory that enlightenment rather than the blood of Christ or covenant uh, affects resurrection. Let me say in the last minute or two, uh, I, I suppose that generally points out uh, what our feeling is on the, on the 20th chapter. That uh, our study this week, we would like maybe to refer you back to the inside cover where, uh, where we make our points of the principles that underlie the apocalypse. In my mind, at least, first and foremost, is the fact that God had with Adam and Eve a purpose that we, we see continued down through the 4,000 years of Old Testament history and 2,000 years of history since the birth of Christ that lead us up to the same end, which is God saying, I have a plan, my character will be stamped and my nature will be stamped upon those that have been selected out by belief of the gospel and my name will be manifested in them. Uh, there's a great deal of, of uh, power in that statement. And, and it embodies much of the others where the establishment of the kingdom, the basis of the gospel, the defeat of the Romish system by, uh, by Christ and the saints are, are in reality our first principal belief of, uh, of the kingdom. I guess we could call it maybe one word, the kingdom. Uh, the name of Jesus Christ and the things concerning the kingdom of God. Thank you.